Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In this case, and in every case, be it in gaming or therapy or a safety tool, we're not dealing with something as simple as a nail. We're dealing with a person. There's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all tool that works for one person, let alone everyone. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Everyone, thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, the show is never about me. It is more of a forum for the guest I brought for you today. With me today is the head designer of Games Incorporated, the designer behind Emberwind, along with a very beautiful team of people who I hope you'll get to meet in future episodes. I'd be uh, excited to bring you the whole kit and caboodle. In addition, they this person has a background in psychotherapy, philosophy, and social psychology that's reinforced by uh, the love of shared worlds, ideas, and experiences. I would like to welcome to the show, Derek Chung! <laughs> Hello, Derek. Hi. Thank you for being on the show. As always, would you just give a brief introduction of how you present yourself to the internet and the world for the folks who may not know of who you are? Sure. My name is Derek. I kind of present... Well, actually, uh, sorry, I should ask, what do you mean by present? Like, normally, like, like, I come up like a friendly guy. Is that the type of presentation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, just like how, you know, what, what you care about, stuff like that, who you are. Tell them who you are. Sure, yeah. So, as Jeremy said, I am a uh, psychotherapist turned game designer who is really just kind of like really anyone else in this hobby. People who, uh, like, I'm someone who really enjoys to, to game. I really like consuming, like, all that type of nerd media out there because I grew up with it throughout all my life and as old as i get i'm never going to lose that like inner child but you know i also kind of wear that on my sleeve where i feel like i'm never going to be that grown up where like i i prefer to be 
super casual. You'll probably see me walking around in like a nom t-shirt or some sort of like uh, thing with like a meme on it with like you know, Patrick glaring at you or something like that. But yeah, I kind of carry that air with me both in and out of the psychotherapist's office as well as two conventions where you can meet me and many of my other members of my team who all work on this beloved IP that we all have together called Emberwind, which is which I kind of started as a foray into trying to make the world a better place as trite as that sounds. But you'll you'll get more of that and more of me and an explanation to exactly how I'm looking to achieve that with Emberwind probably throughout uh, more of this podcast. Amazing. Great. In addition, just in case someone doesn't make it to the end of this episode, where can they reach out to you, talk to you? Where can they get Emberwind? You know, I want you to make money at the end of the day. So uh, <laughs> well, let's get those plugs in early. Thank you. So the easiest place to find and is at my website directly, where you can find it at www.emberwindgame.com. There you'll not only be able to find all the materials that you'd like to check out, but we have lots of free samples, free demos, everything that you can try the game before you actually pick up any of it. But even more important than that is a link to the community discord. It's run by someone else, but the official members, including myself, that belong to the development team are active members of that Discord. So if you have any questions at all about the materials, if you want to talk about anything, if you want to riff about game design, your thoughts about kind of the industry as a whole, whatever, I'm there and super happy to chat with literally everyone. I love it. Super cool. In addition to your introduction, per normalcies of this show... Would you also just give us a brief journey of like how you got into tabletop and what was sort of the thing that sparked you into becoming a game? Can I say a steady diet of gaming and beer? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's that's half of the story. There There is like the more heavier philosophical side, but like I really, really, really can't. Yeah, I, I really can't. The word I'm looking for is play down. There we go. Yeah, I can't really um, play down the influence that beer had on this particular journey i was up at a cottage drinking with some friends one day when they were super convinced after playing a prototype of emberwind when like way way back when when it was still called dungeons and derrick where (laughs) they were like hey you know this this is a really cool game this is a really cool successful ip we think you can take it somewhere so you know that kind of got the gears in my head turning way way back when like if i think back it's probably like probably half my lifetime ago but like 15 years but like at that time i was still completing my degree and doing a lot of research in social psychology neuropsychology and all of that and it kind of like both sides of my life both like the professional and kind of the casual gamey fun side of me kind of just coalesced together to create this game the the more kind of serious answer i can provide that's that's less just you know personal to what Derek's been all about and what I've been doing is really about my experiences working as a psychotherapist. I've uh, done a lot of work worldwide. <laughs> I both worked in America and also over in Asia as, you know, a practitioner of mental health care. And in every single situation that I provided care, there were some really interesting kind of observations and takeaways from all that. And I've said this on like multiple uh, podcasts and I'm going to reiterate it again here. If you're someone who really, really needs professional mental health, do go seek it out. It is beneficial. It's useful. It'll help you. Even if let's say the particular therapist or medication that you're on isn't necessarily working out specifically for you. It is kind of unfortunately like a trial and error thing where over time you'll learn 
through just, you know, talking to like different therapists, what therapy styles, what particular relationships, what people work for you and what don't. That's not to say that someone who makes you feel discomfort and, and I want to be really careful there when I say discomfort, not someone who makes you feel really uncomfortable, but like someone who makes you like question kind of your way of life. And like, there's going to be difficulty with that type of thing. Like if you have someone like that in your life and working as, you know, your provider of professional help, please hold on to them. They'll be really helpful for you as a person to, to grow. But putting all that aside through kind of all of my experiences in mental health, I, I had the opportunity to see that there were a lot of people that the mental health systems um, were failing, right? Not only is it extremely unaffordable to a lot of people, a lot of the times mental health can only be provided to people if your insurance is willing to pay for it. And insurance wanting to try and save money will pick evidence-based therapy styles like CBT, uh, where they'll pay for X amount of sessions for you to attend. That, like, first and foremost, CBT doesn't work for everyone. Secondly, there's no guarantee that you're going to be cured, in quotes, cured, right, in like 12 sessions or less. And it really leaves a lot wanting uh, out of that particular system to really try and encourage, like, a healthier, like, mental states for the public. And as I realized all that, coupled with also thinking about, like, the role of therapists where effectively you're trying to work yourself out of a job, like, you're not actually trying to constantly be there for someone you want someone so healthy that they'll never come and see you again it it made me start thinking like well what are the pieces in people's lives that don't cost a ridiculous amount of money that don't box people into these like specific diagnoses that have to then follow a particular treatment plan that you know are going to be there even long after working together with me is over and the the answer to that is going to sound super obvious, but like it's your support, right? It's your family and your friends around you that are going to care for you. In fact, a lot of the time, it's more important that you have a really supportive circle around you than it is for you to even have a therapist. So with that in mind, I decided, well, you know, what's the way? Well, I, I looked at my own life, really, and decided and, and uh, looked at kind of like how I met my own friends, how I had my most enjoyable moments. And that was all through these experiences and bonds that I formed through gaming, right? Kind of revealing how much of a nerd I am here, but that was kind of that. So I decided, hey, why don't I create a game that effectively operates on a lot of those principles and philosophies that are typical in psychotherapy, uh, blend it all invisibly so everyone's still having a really good time, and design it in a way that helps encourage individuals find and discover new support groups, friends, and and even maybe reestablish connections with family in a way that allows them to really have a much better and healthier life without having to pay an exorbitant price tag for it. That's a uh, that's very very beautiful, and you know I think it's I think it's an important asset to. Uh, tabletop design because I think as you talk, I mean, for me, one of the most enjoyable experiences in my life has been the formation of friend circles through this discipline, hobby, whatever proper word you, you, the individual listener wants to give to it. But I like discipline a lot because I'm fucking master cruncher eater of skill, but I really think it's cool that you've taken a consideration to try and apply these psychotherapy 
principles and weave it, embroider it into the tapestry that is your what was Dungeons and Derek at one point. I don't think I'm going to ever live that name down. Yeah, that's how I'm only going to reference Ember Wind. I'm just going to do a, a bootleg pirate edition, replace the Ember Wind title and just say Dungeons and Derek. But yeah, I, I can't wait to get into that. Those sorts of conversations about maybe one or two pieces of how you're how you're doing that. But was was that sort of the first game that that inspired you to play? Was that the first game that sort of inspired you to create? Is like Dungeons and Derricks the first tabletop touch point you've had, or have there been other ones in your past? Do you mean like stuff that I've designed, or do you mean like what I played to kind of get into? Both, actually. Okay. Uh, I've had a lot of people say like they've gotten involved in tabletop through D&D 5th edition. I've had some people say Mothership and some people have designed because of creating supplemental material for Forge in the Dark systems or something like that. Okay, so I guess we'll start with just talking about tabletop games. I first got into tabletop games, like the traditional like RPG anyways, the same way that a lot of people do with uh, Dungeons & Dragons, but way back when I was like a, a wee lad in like high school, uh, the latest edition that they had released was only 3rd Ed. So, you know, I'm one of those like old people. But it was it was an interesting experience kind of getting into it because, you know, a friend of mine hand, just handed me randomly like the player's handbook and then just walked away and left it for me and i don't think i read a single textbook for the next two weeks at every class i just had the, the manual out reading it because it's basically like an encyclopedia right like i'm still learning promise but it was it was interesting kind of seeing how they were breaking down all these different concepts you know like what a world would look like how even something as simple as like falling off a cliff like how they dealt falling damage size of creatures that type of thing into all these systematized numbers and it was kind of like a really cool entry point into not only this world, but for me being able to like, like it was very different from video games, right? Where you don't really see the code behind the stuff that you're interacting with in the way that like tabletop games, like are like D and D just presented you with those numbers. Cause there's no way to make the system work without you knowing it because the system is effectively your brain. Right. So it, it was really cool having that layer peeled away because before that I had only played video games and I was like super, super into video games. And that, that kind of got me thinking a little bit about like game design and how people, well, really just went about like the whole both science and art of creating. Like uh, back then, I still remember uh, being super into Guild Wars 1. I freaking loved that game to death simply because there was so much diversity in how you could express yourself in that game. Right. It's very different than how you express yourself in Dungeons and Dragons, where you can design every single part of your character down to like their backstory and personality. Obviously, it's up to how good of a DM you have on whether or not they are capable of including all of that in the game. But like you as the person who's making all this, this is this is like your OC to the nines. Like you have completely perfectly designed everything that that you wanted in this, even if like the high school version of you as embarrassed as I am to say this could only design edge Lords and still think that they were cool. <laughs> um, whereas in games like like guild wars where things were so predefined like your character could only look in a particular way you could only pick between like these different armor sets to wear like your personal expression really just came down to your your skills on your bar you had like eight skills you could pick from like an array of thousands to pick the ones that you wanted the best but like there is a way to come up with something that was uniquely you and and anyways like that that started getting me to really kind of 
look under the hood, not only in the different video games I was playing, but also in D&D, where I was looking at, you know, uh, a particular number and be like, mm, I feel like this particular thing, like the sword compared to this axe, feels, uh, you know, overtuned, or this feels undertuned. And I started tweaking those numbers, you know, most people, when they start thinking about how to make a game, they, they play around with the balance of it all, which is how the, the nickname for what was even like pre-alpha of Emberwind became Dungeons and Derricks because I had so many of these little modifications that ultimately improved the playing experience for at least my like immediate uh, gaming circle that it it needed to be made into like a, a separate kind of addendum where you know it was nicknamed Dungeons and Derrick like it um and keep in mind, this was like before 3.5, where uh, Wizards published a lot of official fixes on, on their own end. Like 3.0 was a clunky mess as much as I loved it. But at the same time, like that was really like, like I started to feel like that was kind of shallow where it wasn't really getting at the same level of ability that we really wanted to see. Like it wasn't just whether a sword hit for 2d8 versus 2d6, right? Like a couple points of damage while functionally important, really only like functionally determines whether the player feels good or not based on whether or not they successfully killed, you know, the, the thing that was going to murder, like the, the person they're trying to save or something like that. Or if they just did like, shy of that amount of damage and they had to watch, you know, the failure unfold in front of them as the person they're trying to save gets killed. Right. So there are these these kind of like breakpoints there where really when you examine kind of all those different breakpoints, you realize what matters isn't the number, but the experience or the story that the person who's playing that particular char- character can take with them and carry with them. I mean, not not to like reiterate at this point too hard, but like if you think about, you know, a decade ago to or, or more than that, I don't know how old the, your listeners are here. But like if you think back to high school, do you remember the exact lesson that was taught in a particular class? No, uh, I mean, you know, everyone repeats off something like the mitochondria is the power house of the cell or something like that. But like, other than those particular jokes, probably any moment that you remember back from then is a powerful moment uh, where there's some sort of emotional impact left on you by some teacher who said something that really resonated with you that you weren't necessarily even expecting, right? Something that was character defining that helped you grow as a person. And it was really those experiences that I wanted to get at a lot more than just whether one number was like within a statistical deviation that was acceptable more than another number. And at that point, that's when I realized I couldn't just doctor and change up someone else's system. I needed to craft something completely new to be able to get at that particular thing. And uh, that's when I took uh, Dungeon Derek collapse that all put it into a super dusty binder that now sits beside me that i haven't opened in a long time and started working on everyone straight wow thank you for sharing all that that's that's great yeah i think that you know i've seen twitter discourse about this exact thing of like specific this is specifically around D and in the earlier episodes of this show i do a little bit of DD dunk i'm trying to move past that in my life i think it's interesting that there have been conversations about like when does it's what is that uh, the ship of theseus model right where like mm-hmm. how many boards do you have to replace before the ship of theseus is not the ship of theseus anymore and you know right i think it's fascinating that like when you push on or kick the tires of or examine the pieces of the game that you're playing and say, well, I don't particularly love how this initiative works. And then on top of that, you say, well, 
I don't like that dexterity is such a bloated stat in 5e. Or, you know, I don't like that constitution does nothing. Or, you know, like, it's it's a ton of little things that add up over time. And it's like, are you, is this still D&D? Or is that what you're still playing? You're still playing trad adventure games, which you haven't changed the setting. But the engine in which you are driving the car with has certainly been souped up to the needs of your table. So I find it really fascinating that you found a point at which, like, I just need to pull the ripcord and and do this thing. Like, there's just something within here. It's like, I have 100 Magic the Gathering addendum rules, <laughs> style addendum rules. It's like, I just I just have to do my own thing now. I can't, I can't write 101.38B version of uh, flanking <laughs> and keep calling it what it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's very right. cool. In fact, there's another much more horrifying analogy than the the ship that I think a lot of people grip at a lot better, which is that, and I don't quote me on this because I'm not like a medical doctor in any way, but I think if I remember right, the quote, it goes um, as follows, which is that I think it's by the age of 25, just about every cell in your body has been replaced. So like, are you still you? I totally believe that I am a different person. I think Jeremy 24 died. <laughs> that, I mean, that guy dead welcome to the new second second life yeah but to to kind of I, I, hopefully this isn't like a giant segue into something we didn't necessarily want to go down but like i think the the point at which you decide it's no longer just a mod to some other game but a complete game into itself is when you realize that the experience you're trying to give players isn't supported by the mechanics anymore, right? Like off of D and D, the next game I played is GURPS actually, which is, you know, the generic universal role-playing system, which tried to generate a way for you to literally play anything you want by making everything into point by like literally anything that, that you could into point by, which like on paper is a really cool idea that should work. But in actual execution, at least kind of like the first editions of GURPS there, uh, really flopped. Because if you had, for example, one power gamer in your group, they could immediately decide to take a bunch of negatives that all affect their role-playing. Like they could be, you know, some like one-eyed, crippled, like paraplegic that, you know, had such a low IQ they could barely form three-word sentences, which where they took all of those points that they got and dumped it all into shooting, and now they could snipe someone on the opposite side of the moon, right? Like that's just... That's a serious exaggeration, but I, I had like a, a friend way back when actually try that simply because that was the type of thing that they enjoyed in games. Mm-hmm. But like from there, you also get games like 10 Candles, which is a fantastic game. And if anyone's looking for like tragic horror style role playing game where you're you're literally sitting around a single well 10 candles in uh, the pitch darkness and whenever a candle goes out something horrible happens to the entire group and you can you know have a burst of hope like a literal burst of light by torching a part of your character by setting like a cue card on fire right like it's it's really cool that type of experience and every mechanic in games really should be in my opinion anyways my, my very humble opinion should be designed in a way to get at a particular experience that you're trying to generate for the player yeah, fans of fans are definitely players of Ten Candles slash Know It. It's been a it's been a great a drop in 
lots of episodes. And we've had Randy Lubin on the show before, who is a really great like LARP designer. Uh, also, I always forget the specific term for this, but does facilitated games that are like specific to corporations, like help like team building sort of things. But he, when he designs, he tries very hard to like get the first iteration out and then try to find like what the peak experience was for that role play. And then when he goes into second iteration uh, of design, he's like, okay, how can we make that peak event happen more often or happen closer together in the play experience? And he kind of like keeps tracking on that, on that iteration process throughout the entire creation of the game at hand. So um, we've had people on here before that have talked about like capturing Make sure to capture like the theme or excuse me, people who believe that they're the principles of capturing theme are very important to game design and can be very resonant for the people at the table. Yeah, that is extremely cool. And damn, Jeremy, you got to introduce me to your other friends. <laughs> there. Hey, so many listen to the episodes, but also feel free to come on to the discord server. You can meet everyone. I promise. Cool. Well, <laughs> let's, nice. let's talk about the meat and potatoes of, of why you're here. Let's other than, you know, that you are you and that I am excited to have you on the show. Let's talk about Emberwind. So Derek, would you just give a brief introduction of like what Emberwind is and how do players engage with this game? So I'd love to. It's taken me years to try and concisely describe what Emberwind is because it's so much and also not that much at the same time. But like, I'll I'll do my best here trying to wrangle the concepts together in like a very succinct introduction. Emberwind is a modular game that's supposed to not be the game that like, it's not supposed to be my game so much as it's supposed to be your game. And what I mean by that is Emberwind is designed for every audience at once, which is kind of ridiculous to say, because one of the things that almost every game designer will tell you if you want to be successful is to try and find your target audience and make your game specifically for them. Um, I couldn't do that because a large part of the reason why I got into game design in the first place was to try and create a game that could encourage the growth of relationships and social support. So I didn't want to alienate anyone. So to, to deal with that, I had to try and create a game that could appeal to everyone at the same time, which is why I created a modular game engine where each and every single player in a group could pick their own set of rules, unique and independent from one another, and be able to play together without anyone having to compromise. This means that you can play the game uh, two-player, four-player, one-player. You can play it online or offline. You can play it role-play heavy or role-play light. You can play it with or without a GM. You can play it with you know 30 years of tabletop experience or zero, and it'll still work, and everyone should still be able to have fun. That's a great pitch. Great pitch. Is this... Uh, so, in my experience, this is very, like, it has trad adventure sort of setting themes, trappings on it. Is that also a kind of fantasy part of the game, like a high fantasy game? No, actually, it's not. Oh, no. Cool. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I've actually let you say that multiple times now, hoping to get a chance to correct you like this. But, so, very, very specifically, and this also, we could have a whole conversation about the game engine is not specifically designed for only high fantasy, right? Like, and the question then is, is the engine to the game, the game or not, right? Or do you need that, you know, cool polished veneer of like this particular narrative tied to it before it's an actual game. But, you know, stepping beyond that, anyway, Emperwind itself actually plays in a 
science fantasy universe where we mix yes, a yes, lot yes, yes. of like magic fantasy elements with like a splice of science fiction to give it kind of a familiar but different feel and look to the whole thing. Yeah, definitely an apt correction. And that it says it right in the book, but my brain just sorts it into high fantasy as well. It, it still has like similar energy to like Numenera and stuff like that in terms of like what it presents in the book, which is, I don't know why I didn't go there first in my brain. No worries. But um, yeah. if anything, the comparison to something like Numenera is extremely flattering for such a small indie title like mine. What do you mean? We're going to boost that confidence on this show. Let's get let's get Derek some numbers. Get the hero manual by 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 the skies campaign. Uh, so <laughs> with Emberwin, this this is not a uh, review conversation. So as always, when people are listening to the show, I highly recommend going to go pick up the game. Check it out so you can sort of like follow along because basically I'm, you know, at, at the end of the day, I'm a designer and I'm curious about sort of some design principle things. So with sorry real quick i'm just gonna add don't pick it up if you don't like it we have just about everything available for free the website is currently under construction because we are redoing and revamping a lot of things and updating it to make it more accessible but if you look around hard enough you'll be able to find all the rules for free you'll be able to play around with the monster creator for free the foes are the entire bestiary is free all of our different mechanics are free and if they don't have a free preview up yet we'll have a free preview up soon and beyond all that we even have like a demo of the hero manual and and all that available for free too so just check it out see if you like it and if you don't or don't know where to find any of this just again hop on that discord find someone in the channel and someone will guide you so my first (laughs) my first thing i sort of want to touch on here is the modularity of the game i have another a uh, friend in Spencer Campbell who has designed, we've actually talked a little bit briefly about before they had uh, the frame game that has now turned into Nova is the one who does like the space gladiator set or has been known for the space gladiator setting of games lately. As many other beautiful games, Corbett court shout out. Ooh. But we talked, we, we have talked a lot about modularity in games and in a lot of his designs, he does module design in rule sets specifically for his game light, which is a destiny heartbreaker. So what I find really interesting about your designs in Emberwind is the modularity of interaction points, artifacts, and also sort of difficulty things. Because you even mentioned that you don't have to use like veterans in the game, right? So it has this feel of almost like when I'm going into a solo RPG video game and it's like, hey, do you want... Uh, hard, normal, or easy? Do you want yeah. uh, God it's mode or hardcore? It's right? Not easy like, anymore? It's called story mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give me God mode because uh, they don't want to call it easy. Hey, I love easy mode. If I just want to see the story of a game, I'm playing it on easy mode. Like I don't go, right. I don't go, but I'm not offended. Exactly, and like that's that's a large part of kind of why we did that, right? The the modularity that I wanted to introduce into the game is as you point out like very similar to the whole video game industry a huge part of what makes a game accessible and this is one of those interesting things is something that the video game industry has been very interested in and pursuing for the longest time right like oh you know you can't see this here's like a colorblind filter you're having a problem with using you know a mouse and keyboard well you know here's controller support that type of stuff right not every game does this perfectly but as an industry as a whole right they're doing a lot where you see almost none of that in traditional uh, tabletop games. So 
the model for us when we were looking to develop this type of modularity to create this level of accessibility that I wanted for the game was actually video games. That type of you know options slider that lets you set literally everything however you want to get the exact custom thing you felt like. The other thing that you do that's really modular to your design that I that I like is the difference in character creation. You actually provide two different versions. You do sort of like an aspect based character creation, which I assume has some like GURPS influence behind it, and then an attribute system, which is more typical of like point by systems as we've talked about before. And I think that's also very cool that you give like two. Because not, I think what's interesting is that not everyone, how do I put this? To compare it to 5th edition, again, because that's the mainstream touch point for a lot of people. Not everyone understands, like, what a 15 strength means when it comes to a modifier. And, like, does that actually make my character, like, is that strong, right? Like... Is that actually a reference point for, I know it says in the book, like the average person is a 10, but you know, who's reading that sentence, honestly, like what is the majority reading that sentence? I find it really interesting that you provide that modularity in the character creation as well. Was that sort of something that came later in design or was that something that was sort of a, you wanted to get that from the onset? That was something that I needed to have from the onset. I didn't have it from the onset, mind you, because you know, all my friends who are interested in playing Emperor was a very specific type of demographic, which was the, you know, min-max micro-tweakers for every type of game. But, like, that's that's the exact type of person you want testing your game because they're the people that are, will break it and find all the holes everywhere, right? Um, but, you know, digs at my friends aside, um, hopefully none of them are listening to this, or hopefully they are. You know, I hope all of them are podcast, listening to Please this. listen. The... the I actually took it a step back. Like this had nothing to do with a, a game design type thing. As I was saying earlier, it was about experience, right? And accessibility and just a very simple principle to talk about kind of designing a, a character, right? It is just understanding that there's still a person behind that character. And the person who's trying to make this character may not necessarily be good with math, right? It's a lot easier for someone to be able to just describe the character with some words. Like, are they strong? Are they fast? Are they annoying like me? If we do the number associations to those particular words for them, uh, it's a lot simpler for someone who's never played a tabletop RPG before or doesn't like math to put a character together because all of it's done for them. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we're working on a the automated hero creator right now because you'll be able to just uh, click a couple options and basically design an entire character in like a couple minutes tops in fact you could probably just do it by walking into one of our booths at exhibit hall poking a tablet for a minute and just being like hey look i'm done i have a character now to play with but like that was one approach but i also didn't want to alienate any of the you know like my, my friend types the hardcore min maxers that have been used to trad rpgs forever that want to roll for stats and know exactly what a 15 strength means on its own is actually another interesting point because 15 strength doesn't actually mean that much right like we're talking about specifically game design a range of 10 to 18 especially when that number is divided by two right only works out to modifier of like plus zero to plus four and when you have a dice as swingy as a d20 is really a two point difference from a plus 15 going to mean all that much for your success not really Right. So I don't know, but that's, that's a whole other conversation about probability and odds. I, <laughs> just, 
Listen, I don't love that. I have no love for the D20 here on this channel. And I, I've, I think similar things about like, man, that's just a really wide number of gaps. Does plus five actually make a difference, my dude? Like, I mean, the interesting thing is when I originally designed Emberwin, I wanted to design around a D30. But I chose not to do that because no one owns a D30 and everyone owns D20. So I just needed to make the game system work on that. That's yeah. actually um, like one of the most common criticisms that I get about Emberwind is that there isn't enough content because we compressed everything into four tiers, right? So tiers, by the way, mm-hmm. are, are levels in Emberwind. But the reason for that is because there isn't enough range on a D20. Originally, there was like, depending on how you played the game, eight to 12 tiers, but it only works in a D30 because you want to make sure that every incremental gain feels significant. But at the same time, like to do so you need at least 30 numbers rather than 20 so like we were we were stuck in a particular situation where we couldn't go one way or the other and we decided hey let's simplify down to four tiers to really kind of push you know friendly to beginners type approach and then over time where we're at right now before covid hit release an additional four tiers of content so the you know the the people who really want that extra content will have it to play too yeah that hot that high-end raid content, baby. No one's supposed to know that that's coming. <laughs> I didn't know it's coming. I'm here for oh. it. But yeah, I think I think I'm here for the D20s like roll under system that you've provided here. I I think yeah. it's a more attractive. Maybe not always. I don't want to say simpler. The word I was trying to avoid was simpler because like people automatically go, oh, high number good. But right. I'm here for the. One thing that I sort of dislike about games that are like D&D 5e that sort of like have you make arbitrary difficulty challenges like that you look at the fiction and then sort of like ambiguously decide like, okay, this is a difficulty check of 15 like that. It's, it's going to be different from GM to GM. It's going to be different from player to player. Are you going to set the DC? In fact, I was watching Mention 20's Misfits and Magic last night. Uh, spoilers for Misfits and, Misfits and Magic. Actually, maybe not spoilers, but the GM called for a difficulty check for a particular character, and they were playing kids on brooms, and in that game, you can take half of your role automatically to succeed something. Like You don't have to risk rolling it because you're naturally that good at it. And she said right after, I was like, oh, shit, I have to look at your stats more because I shouldn't have set a difficulty for that number for your character's stat here. And like that stuff is is not useful to me or I like the approach you took for stats in this one that a role under system lets the player decide how difficult something is narratively for them. Right. If their stealth is a 14 out of 20 they've already decided the percentage odds that they can be stealthy. You have, you don't have to set that. You don't have to have like a conversation of position and effect with that sort of thing. Like it just makes it very clear cut, streamlined and kind of easy to assess like how dangerous something is to do. And I, I like that. I think it's a triumph for the book. So I'm here for the D 20 non D 30 content, though. I'm excited to see any raid content that comes after. I mean, honestly, a D30 would achieve the same thing, right? Because as you mentioned, flipping a D20 backwards gives us the ability to not have to use arbitrary numbers or come up with some random thing like a D38 check that you have to look through a book to find the exact ruling on how that modifier came out. Like, it's very quick, it's very accessible, it's very simple. And all we're changing is, you know, every integer on a D20 being worth 5% to a D30, where every integer is worth 3.33%. Right? So you give people a little bit more range. Yeah. 
<laughs> so th- there's actually a secret behind all that. I'm glad you picked all that up. I think you're one of the only people that's talked to me who's straight up said, hey, yeah, this is cool. I like this. And this is why. And, you know, nailed like half of the equation. Um, the other half of the equation is that by flipping a D20 backwards, because we aren't playing with some random like D20, uh, DC28 or DC35 or whatever, the difficulty is always standard, right? It's always set to 100% and you have some range to hit within that 100%. There's, there's no, it, it's kind of like converting flat numbers into Z scores, if anyone understands statistics. And by doing that, by standardizing it, this is what gives us that secret to our modularity because we can now exchange one game system for another, provided that it's operating on that same type of percentage value. For for anyone who's listening and doesn't really kind of get what I mean, here's a concrete example. We use a like inverted D20 roll for everything. So like Jeremy was saying earlier, he was mentioning like how stealthy are you is equal to, for example, a, a number that you've got. So let's say if you have 14. For your stealth value, that means you have a 14 out of 20 or a 70% chance of success. We can represent this by using a D20 where you roll it during a particular moment where uh, you might roll a 1 to 14. Any of that range would mean a success, whereas a 15 or higher would mean that you failed, right? But for some people, that's really unsatisfying because, hey, you know, I'm not really role-playing anymore. I'm like literally R-O-L-L playing where I'm throwing a die on the table and it doesn't really matter what I say or do. That's just flavor to the fact that the die determined everything. So uh, to make the game also really fun for role players, we introduced a secondary system called uh, the deck of fates, which you set up by creating a deck of cards where you have an equal amount of success cards in this 20 card deck to what your skill value is. So if you have 14 in stealth, you have 14 success cards and the remaining six are failure cards. This gives you the same 70% odds. But unlike the die, you can now roleplay the scene with your GM. And anytime you do something that helps support your success in this particular scene through your roleplay, the GM can add success cards to the deck every time you do something that would detract from your success. You flub, whatever, they can add failure cards. And at the very end of the scene where you've hit a natural conclusion, they can draw a card from the deck, at which point that card draw, your odds, right, will have been affected by how you actually role played but you doing that yourself right uh, if you're that type of role player has no effect on someone else in the group who wants to just roll dice because they don't feel that confident about their role playing and i think uh, you beat me to it that was gonna be the next <laughs> thing i brought up you got, you got you got everything then good stuff <laughs> yeah i love that there is this ability to kind of go back and forth between these two artifacts of play because you've built a system where you're not arbitrarily creating the narrative difficulty of a situation, right? This And I think it's important to preface for anyone who's like, well, I don't like that. Uh, I'm super fine with, like, everyone wanting the random, like, DC sort of play style. My personal preference is I really like a deterministic odds in a lot of way. And I actually... Uh, would prefer the card play because I can I can like count the odds in my head and then it's all about shuffle and it's all about it's all these all these other methods of play that I personally really enjoy and so I love that you added that card element to the play structure and create a system that allows you sort of interchange artifacts and I even imagine now what someone could do if like you kind of threw a tarot deck on top of that right like what what would that sort of look like in terms of because uh, I know that in the manual, you might have to correct me. I don't. I'm not going to try to search it for the page because I don't know if I'll find it fast enough. But I believe that it's 
spade and clubs are successes or yeah spade and clubs are successes black cards are successes yeah uh something like that i mean it really doesn't matter so long as you know half the deck is success half the deck is failure just because it gives you a nice number to play with 26 of each right but i would i would totally love to see like what additions you could add it's almost like drawing a tarot card and then interpreting like okay in this tarot deck this play that we're making swords are always reversed right like they're the they're the flip side of the draw because these are the failure cards i just i would i'm now my my design brain is percolating on what a tarot deck version of this artifact exchange would be so we've uh, played with that idea over that idea relies on a particular module that we've yet to release which is the enhanced equipment module where you're not just picking like a uh generic version of a particular item like not just it's not every sword in the game is going to give you a plus two accuracy bonus. And we use like a a like descriptor system where you attach words to it, both as a prefix and a suffix that will then change the effect of that particular item. But until we have that level of depth to the equipment that you're using, assuming you even want to do that, we won't be able to have enough nuances to the types of things that could happen to where a like tarot level type of deck could be supported. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm excited for it when it comes. The, the other thing sort of on the uh, gears of the game of conversation is in some of my circles, we talk a lot about like a mechanical progression. Right. And uh, this is I think it's important to define that this is separate from my narrative progression. But in some ways it can be tied together. You know, there's a whole other conversation of discourse that's currently happening per the taping of this episode (laughs) on Twitter as well about this exact thing. But I mean, if you want to check about mechanical progression, if not for this show, for future show, I'm I'm game. Just let me know when. No, I'm here for it right now. One of the things I like about your class design, you've attempted to sort of do lateral progression in the in the way that you select abilities and the tide turners in the game. Was there any challenge yeah. in breaking that mold of the sort of linear progression with fewer dynamic choices, right? I think what's interesting here is the dynamic choice of creation in something. So, for example, for something in D&D is very linear progression. And sort of you only really get two dynamic moments through play. You get the class you start with, and then you get your subclass choice. I don't know if I would call spell selection terribly dynamic in terms of people who are going to gravitate to the obvious useful spells like fireball and and things like that. But there's some real creative uses of spells. Like I used to define my character by... um, by at level uh, for my first level spells never taking magic missile like every other like wizard would i would always pick mount because hey you can summon a horse up to 30 feet away they didn't say it had to be horizontal that could be vertical over an enemy and falling damage from a 600 pound horse is going to be way more than a magic missile you monster yeah i'm a terrible person Um, (laughs) why would you do that to that poor fictional horse So this is the thing. It's not a fictional horse. It's not a magically created horse out of thin air. This is just summoning the nearest horse somewhere from some poor sucker or or someone, some horse just out in the the field that just gets plummeted to their death. Derek, that's not better. No, that's not. (laughs) That's how that worked. And if you wanted to be cruelly efficient, then that was your better spell choice. So your <laughs> on your on your class design was that sort of what the first iteration of yeah two things here I want to know sort of what your class design philosophy was because I think that's an interesting conversation when people look at more adventure style games okay. and how to maybe break the mold of linear progression. Mm-hmm. And do you think you've accomplished what you set out to do in terms of creating a lateral build, sort of a craft build experience, build craft, whatever way you want to swap those words? So yes and no. I think I've successfully done a lot of what I set out to do, but like anything in game design, it's an iterative process and there's always more to be done where you can make it better and better and better. So to start off, I'll go back to my previous example where I brought up Guild Wars 1. Right, so Guilders One, um, along with ev- a lot of other uh, games out there, uh, specifically let's say the MO variety, your player expression comes down to your build. Right, you've successfully selected these particular skills, and through the use of those particular skills, that is how you play your character. Right, it's not just from your class selection. Unfortunately, in games that really favor only linear progression, like D and D, this leaves uh, very specific classes. Well, it leaves, in general, all classes feeling kind of eh. But, like, 
very specific classes, like for example, the fighter feeling horrible because as other people level up and they get cool new uh, ways to express themselves, like all these awesome spells that they can pick from, you get to hit more times. Okay, like cool, but like, is that actually exciting? Not really. All you're doing is making basic attacks over and over and over and over and over, right? Like it's there, there's a lack of expression in the player because what you're doing is you're playing the class as it was intended, right? You're not playing the class your way. You're playing this one, uh, one dimensional thing that the designer has said, this is what you can play with. That's one of the reasons why I'm so, um, opposed to perfect game design. Cause if everything is perfectly balanced to one another, a lot of the time it's so reductionistic that like, there's like no net difference at the very end of how something was done. So, in in Emberwind, what I was trying to do with the classes was I was trying to make, well, as you're putting it, I wanted to create a lateral progression system. That doesn't mean it's completely devoid of linear progression. I know how important it is to see your numbers go up, which is why as you level in the game, things like your HP, the damage you deal, all of those raw numbers go up. Big number, good. But they go up in a way that's actually meaningful, right? Like if you, again, this isn't to in any way to hit on D&D. I know we've been talking about it a lot. It's just a comparison point. But like, let's say, you know, you've hit level 15 in D&D. Sure, you know, you can swing your sword more times as the fighter, but like at some point, the HP scaling gets so freaking high that the same fight is now going to be a slog that's going to take you, let's say, like eight hours to get through before you can get to the next like role-playing segment or something like that or any sort of meaningful thing that's going to happen. And that isn't fun, especially if you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs every you know for 20 minutes as you wait for everyone else in your group to have their turn where they get to do something way cooler than just basic attack a bunch so so in, in emberwind what we wanted to do was we wanted to make sure that scaling was meaningful and we wanted <coughs> every action no matter it being your like first tier action to your max tier actions to feel equally potent so as a general rule every we call them actions every action that you can perform has a built-in damage scaling that multiplies by your tier. So if let's say you are uh, tier two and you're swinging a sword, your sword will do two D, you know, six damage versus at tier one where you do one D six damage. The same type of scaling is applied to spells. What we did instead is where when your tiers start to go up, your options for actions don't become numerically more powerful. They actually become more specialized in uh, specific ways that you want your character to be expressed and played. A uh, quick example of this might be like at tier one, let's say you're doing an attack that does very simply, you know, 2d8 damage. You know, cool, right? That That's, or, sorry, uh, let's, let's use the number 2d10 for all the like math hounds out there. So like 2d10 damage, that's cool, that's simple. But let's say you've got a, another player in your group who wants to experiment a little bit. They, they've discovered that they really like a, a combo where they can knock enemies prone because they have a different action that gives them plus five damage uh, against prone targets. Well, cool they've now created a character who has an archetype right they they're the guy who likes to knock people down and then stab them or kick them while they're down right like that's that's a cool thing it's got like a roguish feel you've now found a way to express your character beyond just your basic attack but for that particular character they're not going to get that bonus five damage without first having something knocked down and at this point they're going to look through their character list or even better talk to the other players in the group and start going, hey, you know, do you have anything that can help knock people prone? Or do you have anything that combos off of prone? Because I'm going to be building a character all around this. And now you don't have 
uh, individualistic character creation anymore, where everyone in the party just kind of does their own thing and no one really works together. You actually have synergies that are being built into this group. To go back to those numbers earlier, I was saying that the basic attack, right, those 2d10, this particular prone type of, of action, the, it'll do, let's say, 2d8 plus 5, right? Like there's going to be more damage output if you can get things prone assuming that that's capable. And we have a monster system in the game that is intelligent enough that even without a GM, if you turn up to the highest difficulty, it'll learn the strategies of the player and over time adapt and rewrite its own AI until you can't defeat it anymore. Like it will do everything to prevent itself from being knocked prone once it recognizes that you're trying to knock it prone. And what happens is on average, both builds, be it someone who swings that basic attack or versus doing this, you know, crazier wombo combo, are going to be doing about the same damage, which means that the balance between the two builds is perfectly fine. The only thing that's changed is the difficulty in which you're playing your character with. So if you are that beginner character and you don't want to change up your tier one actions, you want to keep them sweet and simple, you can stick with them and still be equally valid of a character as you know the most experienced player who's designed this insane combo where he does like forty thousand damage but only through a very specific condition because that condition is going to be very difficult to execute and in the case that it's not because you've all worked together to make it more common well that's your you know reward it feels good to do good and you should be able to enjoy that yeah it it's really what it both look and sounds like as you're talking about it here is that a lot of the class design focus is more about the um what do i want to say the composition of the team rather than the design of the, i mean i'm sure there was individual class design that went on here that's that's very i think that that's going to be needed here like what does the ardent feel like right but how does the ardent feel in reflection and in combination with the other eight classes in the game, right? And I find it really fascinating. Uh, it's something I also look for when I think about class design as well. I'm currently working on something that like does a lot with the concept of like Final Fantasy's job systems. Yeah, and I, I, I am thinking a lot about currently the oh, what is it called? Final Fantasy 13's paradigm shift system, like how almost mm-hmm. every character can attain different roles throughout a single combat. Right. And I, I think that what's really cool about what you've uh, been doing here and what you're working towards is, like you said, working on synergy and teamwork. I think, and and like really looking at the conditions and keywords of, because one thing that Derek hasn't mentioned that I also think is really cool is how they how he and the team have constructed these conditions of like poison and things that are special or unique to each class as well which i find really interesting that isn't always just like everyone can stun in a different way everyone can cause the fright condition in a different way some classes can't cause some conditions which i think is very cool like what are the limitations of a class that another class can make up and that that class then another class can feed off of which is i think one of this is my design brain tinkering in my own personal thoughts i think one of the keys to lateral design progression is to think about the whole package of of the class package it's like how how does this class interact with other classes instead of thinking like how is this class solely interesting i think you also think about solely interesting as well but i love the concept of like how can the tactician play with the atlantic 
right? How can the warrior play with the archer? What? How can they synergize together to create a more tactical experience? I think also something that plays into this is your combat system and how you can sort of like fluidly change initiative and things like that. I think that's also a big key of synergy play here, but I love it. I mean, the the bottom line was really to make sure every choice, no matter as big as picking your class to even the micro choice of when you act in each turn was something that needed to be meaningful, right? Like that's where all the player fun comes from, why player agency matters so much. It's because we want to make sure every decision you can make feels rewarding and has an adequate amount of consequences and trade-offs with those choices. And, And as you were saying earlier with like the different classes that you pick, while we want every class to feel capable and competent and have very unique ways of defining their play style, we also wanted to make sure that they were defined by what they couldn't perform or couldn't do. So a quick example of that might be, for example, the rogue. We have a rogue in, in Emberwind that can actually heal, right? Like most people don't think of the rogue as a main healer or even capable of doing any sort of healing, but the rogue can. And it's based on a lot of the different influences that we fuse into it where they can actually convert poisons into healing. But because they're they're set up in a way where they have to rely on using poisons to heal, this immediately makes them synergize with particular classes that can put poison on things much more frequently. An archer, for example, can put poison and ardent can't. At which point do you play, you know, with that ardent or not? And or, or if you do play with the Ardent, are you as the rogue going to play the healer, or maybe is that a role best left to someone else? And all of these things and all these choices, the pieces that you have, because they don't make up an entire picture, they make up most of one, that's what makes it interesting where you have to pick and choose how each and every character is supposed to cover the important roles for your team and to what extent, right? Like you don't have to have one character specialized into only being the healer and do nothing else. It can be spread out in a lot of different ways across multiple characters. I play a lot of, I love that because I, I play a lot of Final Fantasy XIV, which for anyone who doesn't know, Final Fantasy XIV is an MMORPG. And in that game, the healer role over time has been adjusted so that they do more than just heal. Like they are a very support class. Like white mages are very reactive healers. Scholars are very proactive healers with like barriers and shields and stuff. But on the downtime, like when you don't need to heal, it is actually expected that your class still does some form of damage. You do about the same damage as like a tank. You're not going to do as much damage as DPS. But the creators of the game, the designers have designed fights that like take into consideration that, hey, we build the white mage to have spells like stone and holy that do crazy amounts of damage when there are, when there is downtime possible. So like do it or else you can't like do the most top end style of raid. And, what I like about you bringing up the rogue can heal through poisons is like, I think there's a lot of design space available for trad adventure games where we can break the molds of, there has to be some expectation for the newbie, right? Like the rogue should do what the, the newbie should think a rogue does by hearing the name rogue in some fashion. But I think it's also interesting to be like, oh, this is actually like, I can heal through poisons. That's kind of surprising. I expected them to have poisons, but I didn't expect them to do like antidote stuff. But then like clicks in their brains like, oh, maybe since they know how to make poisons, they know how to make these antidotes. I don't, I'm not saying antidotes are what the healing method is for this game. I'm just trying to give the give the spread to to the listener so yeah i I think it's really i think it's really important that we chat that we move into a phase and i think it could like breed new life into the trad experience of like 
let's let's do the the typical class. Let's push on what that means. What are they? If the, if traditionally rogues have introduced poison into the themes and tropes of it existing, what else can poison do? Are rogues also alchemists? Right, that's technically true. Like a rogue should also be an alchemist in a lot of ways because they understand the properties of chemistry when it relates to poison. Does that also mean they had a breadth of knowledge that relates to chemistry in other fields? Right. I think that's an easy assumption to make. It's not a leap of faith to say that that's possible. So, and especially in the science a fantasy gear positioning that Emberwind is in as well. So I think, I think it's really cool that you're attempting to do and succeeding. I don't want to say like you haven't done these things, but uh, I find it interesting <laughs> that you're doing that and challenging sort of like the design space. And I know that there's like some Guild Wars 2 influence in this game uh, and Guild Wars 2 also kind of does away with some of those assumptions, like a paladin who shoots a bow, I think is wicked cool. Shout out to all my dragon hunter guardians out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like that's one of the things that we wanted to do where we wanted to start people off in a position where they found things that were recognizable right so like we have a rogue we have a warrior we have an archer these are things that immediately you can grip with and go i know what that is and for those particular classes they also scale in that particular way where you start off doing the traditional thing where you know as a rogue you can stab someone in the back you get bonus effects you can apply poisons that's cool as soon as you start hitting the higher tiers, you'll start unlocking these variants on how to play these particular things. Kind of think like a, a skill tree progression in said MMO where you're developing and picking like between one or, of two specializations of how something happens, right? And then you're like, oh, well, cool. Now I have all this type of uh, all this interesting build diversity. Where do I go from here? And for us, the touchstone for to make all these. Uh, things accessible and this includes all the brand new classes that we put out was really culture we we pulled from different cultures around the world but we did it in an interesting way where not only are each of the classes um <coughs> based on a particular culture they're subclass derivatives because every class is capable of three different types of, of action categories their subclasses um fuse different cultures into that to create something wholly new and we take that and tie it to you know the, the fantasy universe that everyone's familiar with, but with that splice of science gives us the ability to not only develop the way people expect us to, but laterally as well, so that you get that kind of new, unique Emberwind feel to something that's been done to death before. I think it's good. I think it's great. The last bit I want to touch on as far as like design sort of poking sure. uh, is the AI hex grid, which is also something I think a lot about, especially as I try to fit raids into my own personal game. Like I want to bring <laughs> Savage Ifrit to the uh, to the tabletop experience. So yeah, for anyone who again hasn't like been through the book, Derek and the team have it's really cool AI hex grid. It's sort of like an AI hex flower thing, D six based. You roll a D six, and then the creature in question starts to engage in an action chain for its turn. So wh- why? Why this? Why not just, like, I know that they can. We don't, you know, I don't think we need to talk about that the GM can take control of the creature at any point and choose the action. But, like, why also provide this? Was this for, like, a co-op experience? Or it was just something you wanted to fiddle with and you thought you found, like, an answer for? AI Hexgrades, talk to us about it. Dang. Okay, so there's a lot that went into designing this. And it's probably one of my, my most beloved brainchilds by both the community and the rest of the development team. The... Like, people have, like, uh, one of the 
I'll phrase it this way because I don't I don't want this to sound like again I'm I'm judging D and D or anything, but in fact D and D is one of the better games for this already. But in almost every traditional RPG, you have to have a GM, and that's probably the greatest barrier of entry. Like, forget the price tag, forget you know the the fact that you have to read through a 300 page book and figure out what you're doing off of that with no one to teach you. Right? It's specifically the fact that most groups can't find a competent GM to play with. In fact, it's so rare that there are literal services out there, websites that sell GMs, right? You can, it's a GM for hire. You pay them money and they'll run a game for you. Um, but like even factoring that type of stuff in the statistic, at least before COVID, I don't know if it's changed since then was about one GM to every 20 players. And as everyone knows, having 20 players in one group is not a fun way to play the game. There's a lot of downtime. There's no way that anyone can balance anything. Like it's just it's just rough. And this is still assuming that that one GM is of quality. We haven't even talked about how many people are bad GMs, don't know what they're doing, or or so forth. Right? So the likelihood of you getting a competent group going is very, very, very difficult. Which is why for anyone out there who's lucky enough to have a GM, go thank them right now for doing all that crazy work that they do to make your game cool and good. The other problem here is that a lot of books, you know, D&D, Shadowrun, doesn't really matter. Any game system just kind of assumes that people know how to GM right from the get-go. <laughs> like, they write it as in, you either know how to GM or you don't. The end. So, there isn't really even a good entry point for someone who's interested in becoming a GM to picking up learning at all and so forth. So, I took a page out of, like, video games like Dungeons & Dragons. Or, sorry, not, not Dungeons & Dragons. Dragon Age. Too many dragon things and names. Out of Dragon Age's book where they designed a game system, right? And they're not the only one, but they designed a game system where they created a bunch of enemies that would perform actions in particular ways. You'd have to set up your team with all these different scripts that you gave them, like, if below 50% health, drink a damn potion because you're an idiot and you're going to die, right? Like that type of stuff where uh, you could effectively create almost like this combat simulator minus the one character that uh, you were controlling that gave you this really immersive experience. And we wanted to not strip away the traditional RPG experience where it was able to control everything that they wanted to in whatever way that they, they decided. But we wanted to introduce a floor to the game, something that could support groups that didn't have a GM or had a GM who was learning how to play, which is how we created a very basic AI system that could control the creatures for you. It's very simple. Every creature comes with some characteristics which determine how they perform uh, certain actions for example if they choose to target closest target furthest target the squishiest target your healer whatever uh, and then you roll d6 to give it a bit of randomness to determine what type of actions it'll perform be it like a move and basic attack a move and uh special ability that type of thing and the stronger the creature got it's not just a increase in numbers that they get for their base stats they actually get more complicated ai diagrams so they can become uh, more interesting in how they act and what happens here is that the not only is this a great system for groups without GMs, it effectively teaches GMs or, or to be GMs how to kind of create interesting encounters as they watch these enemies kind of act on their own, right? That there there's this level of nuance to their logic where like these particular enemies support those enemies, but those specifically target your healers. So like what part of the puzzle does the party start to unravel take on first to unravel this whole Fiasco. But from there, we also added some evolutions to that AI system where, and, and this is just 
uh, for, for anyone who isn't familiar with Halo, it's, you know, a space shooter game where you play as like a super soldier, Master Chief, that goes and like fights off the aliens, then the Flood, which is another group of aliens and so on and so forth. But there, there's a really, really interesting thing that the developers behind Halo stated, which is that you don't want to create AI that is unpredictable or too smart for the player. Ultimately, you want to create something that they can predict with very important tells, because in doing that type of thing, the player feels great for being able to outsmart it, that they feel responsible for the choice, and there's consequence to their actions. Oh, you know, I know that if I get close to this little grunt guy, he's going to pull out two sticky grenades, stick in his hand, and run at me, and blow himself up. That'll kill me. I probably don't want to do that, so you'll actually try and... Like you'll start developing specific countermeasures to that type of thing versus, let's say, how you fight a brute who's charging you with a hammer. Like you know to run the hell away in that situation. What we want to do was we want to create a base AI system that was simple enough that players could learn off of it by predicting things, which is really really fun, right? But the the problem with games like Halo and the problem with a lot of uh, video games that use these types of AI systems is once you've the player has mastered it, they've learned everything there is to learn. They know exactly what countermeasures there are. It's not fun anymore to them. And for video games, they typically add an artificial difficulty where they will increase the stats, the numbers of the game, where let's say instead of dying from 10 bullets, you die from a single bullet or something like that, right? Legendary on in, in Halo. But in, in our game, we wanted to continue to challenge people to grow as a player. And the way we did that was we added red hexes to this action chain system where the enemies could actually develop uh, they'd pick up new actions and pick up new ones as you fought against them over time as though they were adapting and learning to your favorite strategies. Uh, and they would change their behavior in a way where your hero strategies that you've developed as countermeasures would become increasingly less effective, which forces an evolution of the metagame so that you can't just play the same stale way over and over and over. And this is also a training tool for GMs to look at to learn, to figure out how they can alter behaviors over time and get better at GMing to constantly challenge their players. And even more, and this is the cool thing about this, all of our systems can be turned on or off down to the turn, down to the specific a combatant, down to their particular action. So if you are a GM who knows all this stuff, great, and you want to control things manual and so forth, but you don't want to do all the work, you don't have to. You can leave certain enemies running on the AI system where you just roll a D6. In fact, it's so quick and so simple that the players can even do it on their own because all the defense checks and damage and everything is done by the player themselves. It's all player controlled. And you can just focus on controlling the stuff that you care about to make sure that you're not working too hard to be able to have the most enjoyable experience with everyone you're playing with. Yeah, I think that a big help on two fronts, especially when we talk about this AI system, is that one, that a lot of the defensive measures is handled by the role of the players. I think I really appreciate systems that do that because, I don't know, I'm just not one of those people who love the GM rolls D20 to decide if something hits or not. And then especially like when you add a, the like I don't know the social good. betrayal mechanics of like social games that social betrayal games that are like, I'll roll behind a screen now. Right. Yeah. It, it never feels good to to do that where like you're just told you've been hit versus yeah, yeah. like there, there's almost this shell shock feeling versus you holding the die in your hand like i don't know what it is because the odds are the same but at that moment you feel personally responsible for this like i'm the one that walked in the situation i'm the one that said commit 
every action I had to attacking this guy. And there was like a, a 50% chance I could finish him off, but I didn't. And now I have to eat my just desserts, right? Like the, yeah. it, it feels a lot better when you're the one having to do all that rather than just being told randomly you've been hit. Yeah. I don't like when the, when the <clears> game <throat> decide, like it, there's a fine line here to draw for sure. But like, I don't like when the game decides a pass or fail. I would like some input. At the day. Um, <laughs> There's but like another benefit like choices, whatever. Wait, that's a whole other. Yeah, yeah. But there's there's another benefit of this too, which is that with Ember, when one of my goals was really to develop this collaborative experience, right? Doesn't matter with who, be it other players or your GM. And way too often, unless at least with like very immature players, there's a tendency to associate the GM with the enemy mm-hmm. rather than to understand that they're just trying to create the most fun enjoyable experience for you and that can extend in a lot of interesting ways where like i've i've seen and even had the displeasure of running groups where the people that i was playing with just didn't want to play my story uh because they're like no you know gm is evil everything they do is evil their story is evil don't want anything to do with it and at that point like what do you do right like we, that was everything you, you could have <laughs> right <laughs> And uh, to to kind of get rid of all that, you can easily, as a GM, just point to the faux card where all the scripts are written and say, hey, you know, it's not me that's killing you. It's the system. And guess what? The system <laughs> here specifically says you put yourself in this situation, right? So who who's to really blame but yourself? There, there's like a different level of fairness tied to it because of that. Yeah, yeah. It's And it's also when it's transparent to a lot of it. Again, this is, this is tough because... Emberwind lives in a space that D&D lives in. So it's, it's, I don't know if it's always fair to make these comparisons, but you know, a lot of the game as taught through oral tradition is like you hide the monster stats too. Like, I, I think what I like is the transparency of the game, right? You've developed a system that prevents sort of like the meta initiative. Like if I look at the stat block for a troll in D&D 5e and I'm playing a new game with the new DM or whatever, and I say, oh, trolls are weak to fire damage. Now we get into this interesting like mental battle of like, is that okay? Is it okay that my character who's never been an adventurer before may have never interacted with the troll? Do I make the suboptimal choice to ignore the fire damage yes. vulnerability? Right? Like I, I hate that dissonance between player and character because you have to specifically tell yourself, oh, I have to not know the things I know that I know from other stuff because the meta is affecting things. Or if I do know them, how do I like it? It's, it's such an irritating problem where playing the game isn't the same thing as playing the player. Yeah. That was one of the reasons why we launched this AI system because we wanted to, <clears throat> we didn't even want to discourage metagaming. We want to encourage it as much as you can because the system will scale up to find a way to kick your butt anyways. Yeah. Cause there are people who like that type of thing and we don't want them to feel alienated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's certain interest in like secret of monster, but then like when you know you're put like if you're at a table DMing five DMs, you know they've all read the monster manual at some point. You either have to use a really obscure monster or you have to start homebrewing. And then like a, again, like we run into this interesting conversation of like what's fair in that respect, right? Because I as a player had to pick options from the books. I didn't get to use my homebrewed pugilist chuck because i fucking love that homebrew class but you know why does the dm get to adjust their toys when i can't adjust my toys right like again it, it creates another like 
weird battle of social, what's the word? Almost like social contracts for your table. So what I'm saying is yeah. like, one, I advocate for full transparency of like, look, the troll's weak to fire. Everyone can know that as a player right now because what D&D cares about is war game first, narrative second. So like, let's do the damn thing. And I love that they're sort of like, AI hexes are built to kind of challenge in a co-op manner. But if you have a GM one, like you can, you can really like unleash the punches by like, okay, we're going to not really do the action chain. I'm just going to pick some actions. And this dude is going to use action C over and over again, like for, you know, whatever play style game plans. I like that both options are there, the transparent option. And if the table's into it, the sort of like social betrayal option. Yeah, that's, and that's the whole point, right? We want to make sure that there's as many ways for players to enjoy the game as we can, which is why we introduce so many different modules and systems that people can pick and choose which way they want to engage with their group with. I love it. More modular games. Claps. Claps for Derek and the team. In this segment of the show, Derek, do like a trends tips sort of thing in that, you know, as far as like trends are concerned, what are you seeing in your social circles like Twitter, Discord, whatever have you about trends in the industry or tangential to the industry that you're like really cool? I want to see more of what I'm already seeing. Are there some trends that you're noticing in the industry that you feel are being a little detractful that you want to caution people against or put your sort of two cents in and or a third option are there trends within you that you want to see more of that you're not seeing that you would like to let a listener have and run away with and experiment with to their hearts so sorry how much time do we have because this is this is easily <laughs> like a multi-day topic yeah absolutely anything to fill up a half hour's worth and I know that you brought some topics to the table as well, so feel free to pull from those. I think what w- might be really interesting for a first episode, or if this is an, our uh, only episode for a little while, we you have such a powerful uh, psychotherapy background, right? And you were mentioning a lot about how you were trying to tie in mental health principles and cognitive health principles through the design of Dungeons and Derricks, which soon turned into Emberwind. So yeah, well, let me forget that. Yeah, yeah, won't ever let you forget it. <laughs> let's actually let let's examine that a little bit. Let's examine like we can what are there. what have you invisibly designed or was a principle for the design of the game in terms of helping create a uh, more positive or or come therapeutic experience. Uh, sure. How about I start there and then do you one better and tie it back to the whole trend thing too? Sure. Sure. Okay, so a couple really important decisions that we wanted to make was, in fact, I'll start with the modularity, was making the game modular. We wanted to make the game modular in a way that wasn't just something that you locked in was set period about this is the only way to play, but really wanted to make it like a dynamically modular game where at any point you decide you want to try something else out, you could. One of the main faults in a lot of the people that I've seen in therapy and I, I really do the I use the word faults here very carefully and, and very precisely, is that people are stuck in a situation that sucks. 
right? Like uh, there's no denying that. Let's say if you're sad or depressed, that that sucks. And the only reason why someone's come in to have any sort of professional help applied in any way is because they want that situation to change, right? Obviously for the better, because if nothing changes, not only does it suck, it could eventually get worse, right? God forbid. So in those particular situations, the important thing is finding a way to help that particular person grow, right? Grow beyond themselves. And this is going to sound super freaking obvious, but you only know what you know, right? Like you don't know any more than that. You have to find something external to yourself to go, oh, maybe there's, you know, something else out there, something that's different, something that I've never considered before. And that particular principle in psychology is known as scaffolding to find something somewhere else that you can learn from that maybe there's a different way to life than you've already seen before. And we do that with things like, for example, those different role play systems. If I, for example, have never been comfortable role playing, but I see someone else using a different system in this group who's able to role play using, you know, the, the deck of fates playing in this particular way, that's much more immersive. I might at some point feel capable of hopping in and giving that a try, right? It's been compartmentalized in a way where I'm not being demanded to do this. And when I feel confident to do it, the invitation is there waiting for me to pick it up. And from there, there there's this building up of myself from within that not only improves kind of my skill set, but also helps me learn more about myself, who I am, what I like, what I don't like, and possibly allows me to grow out from there. This particular concept is applied to a bunch of other things that we do too. For example, the introduction to Ember Wind really comes from our campaign books, which are designed in this way where they work as a like choosable path adventure style book where as you play through a pre-written story, you'll hit these decision points where you have to pick between choices. And those particular choices you make will have drastic outcomes on the storyline. And they aren't made independently. They're made with between you and the rest of the group. Sometimes they allow for discussion. Sometimes they don't, where there's an immediate situation that you have to react to. And in all of those situations, regardless of the outcome that you now have to live with and the consequences, every single person is going to approach making that decision in a different way, be it because of their character or be it because of you yourself as the person making those choices, because you, let's say, don't know how to role play yet, right? <clears throat> so those moments, especially if you're forced to continue to play along with one another uh, to see it through to the end. There's a curiosity that we hopefully develop in you where rather than straight up say, oh, I can't believe someone would choose option B rather than option A, you might go, well, like these people are actually people around me. They've made other choices where they've sometimes agreed to me and sometimes they haven't. Why is that? And through experiencing these other people through that particular lens and context, you hopefully will be able to find ways that'll challenge your way of thinking too. Uh, unfortunately, this isn't ready yet, but the development of Emberwind is built in a way where it's supposed to tie to a bunch of different online tools. But like, let's say you're playing one of our campaign books on your own. This is the first time you've ever played a tabletop RPG. You don't have any friends to play with, any of that. <clears throat> if you're playing through a storyline where multiple points in the story, the decisions you make have an ethical implication, right? And because you don't really know how to role play yet, you're really just playing yourself. Well, then the choices you're making throughout the story is really just like a science fantasy veneer painted over a personality test. And we can, if you allow us to track those choices, figure out what your personality is, and then find other players who also are looking for, you know, groups and people to play with, friends to play with, who are similar enough to you 
that you'll have a good time, but just different enough from you that it'll help you grow as a person and help you basically form a brand new social group that you've never had before. That's that's pretty fascinating. I've heard of oh shoot, not not similar to like finding having sort of like a personality match in terms of what you like in the game. Oh man, I'm upset that I can't remember the company that did this. There's a company who looked at like the scales at, and different metrics of like game interfaces. So like whether or not you like uh, a competitive game versus like a solo game, right? Like do you want to play with a lot of people or do you want to play by yourself or do you like sort of more aggression or violence in your games, or do you like more somber, peaceful, tranquil things in your games? I'm gonna have to look this up and, and link. I'm gonna have to find it and link it in the in the show notes. But I find it very fascinating that you're taking those measures to kind of basically make what's not what's what's a less shitty Tinder like. Uh, what you're talking about is matchmaking, right? Yeah, 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 yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's call it as matchmaking, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's true in lots of games. Competitive games have it too, right? They find you based on your MMR, right? To match you up with people of equal skill levels, so you have a fun time. We're just taking it and applying it in a way that uses you know psychological principles to help you have a better time as a person, not just in-game. Yeah. Because um, guess what? A lot of things already do that. Steam already has metrics on who you are. Facebook does too, but they use it to advertise and sell you things you don't need. We're just trying to promote better mental health. I think it's, I think that's very cool. And is is this something that you like? Wish that more people would look at or touch base with when they form like design team or, or, or oh, I would in, in no. my no. You say no. no. Yeah, I do not want more people to try this. It's not an well, easy thing. I mean thing. more more professional qualified people who come oh, from yeah, no, I don't mean not. like me the no, 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 Joe decide personal studies. I know. Yeah, <laughs> professionals I definitely don't want. It's it's really interesting. I, I was gonna get into this actually a little bit off of the segue into the trends stuff. But there is, for example, a rise right now in and it's an interesting trend here, right? There's a rise in this of specifically therapists that use gaming as their medium to do therapy. In fact, there are whole summits and whole conventions about this now. Some of my uh, really good friends, like the the Madonna Group, run conventions about this and educate people on it. And I think they're trying to actually start opening up like college courses, or at least a course where you can get college credit from, where you learn how to therapeutically GM. <clears throat> it's super cool stuff. But the problem with this is that the therapist, right, is a very specific hat you have to wear being a gm is another very specific hat you have to wear and like to throw in a third hat there to also be a game designer is very challenging and very difficult so what what ends up happening a lot of the time is that anyone who typically operates in this particular area does so in a way where they specifically try and uh, compartmentalize they look for something small something digestible something to focus on and usually that turns out to be a particular topic like here's a game that's designed to simulate the experience of i don't know depression right but is that is that really a game are you having a good time with it or are we using the vehicle of a game to create a simulation where we put you in the shoes of someone who is depressed so that you can understand the particular situation better Right, uh, and the the more you standardize this type of thing, the more you're going to end up creating, in in almost a, a weird way, a system of treatment where, like, oh, you know, we've diagnosed you with X, so now you follow this twelve step program, so now after at the end of this, you're cured, right? Like, it it almost generates the same problem that therapy 
the, the, the same problem I had with therapy anyways, from the get-go, where the current state of therapy, anywho. That's not to say I don't want to see this happen in the future, and I definitely want people to do so, but it's such a rare thing in the industry. I think I'm like one of the only people that do this, that I'd, I'd really want to make sure that whoever it was that was designing this did so from like a really good place or a really thoughtful place and did so in a manner that wasn't done in isolation, right? Like <clears throat> I don't design any of this by myself. I, I take into account every experience that I've had, every client I've seen, every person I've bumped into. And, and even then, I don't think that the tools that I've designed even scratch the surface of what this type of thing uh, like should be capable of. And, and there's no way that what I've created actually captures or appeals to as many people as I'd like to do. There's always going to be something or someone excluded. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is I would definitely like to see more of this happening. Like it's not a straight up no, but it needs to be done so very precisely and with a lot of care rather than just like, a, oh yeah, you know, let's all do this and hop on this as the next hot trend to, you know, hashtag tweet about because like that's that's seriously, in my opinion, going to be a gateway into a lot of trouble. And, and to give you a quick example of this, one of the trends that I am noticing that I feel really iffy about, because there's so much good and also so much bad about it that no one's talking about, is the uh, progression of safety tools in gaming. Right. So the most common one that, that most people probably heard of, especially if they have gone to a convention ever, is the X card. <laughs> right. It's a very popular tool. And it's a great tool at that, where if you, let's say, walk into a pickup group and someone you know, pulls this X card out, you have to stop doing whatever it is that you're doing and then move on immediately. Right? That's just what it is. And the reason why it exists is as follows. Let's say I go into a random group. I sit down looking for a fun time. You know, it's my Friday. I paid a bunch of money to fly out to this particular convention. And as soon as we start playing, the person beside me decides to start talking about how they're, you know, raping a particular NPC. I, I, I am not there for that. Like that, that is not what I think of a fun Friday night. Right. So, uh, if that's the case and that makes me uncomfortable, I can pull the, the X card and immediately skip that particular conversation. And we move on as a group, right on paper. That sounds fantastic, right? It protects the rest of the group in, in a way where everyone gets to have effectively a, a minimally good time. Right. But let's flip this around for a second. Let's mention, let's talk about and let's think about that particular person who decided to randomly, you know, do something as atrocious as that to an NPC, right? Why did they do that? Maybe because like you don't, you don't know this person. They're just sitting there uh, going through like they're ju they're just playing a game with you, right? You, that's the first time you ever met them. Maybe they've had particular trauma in their life and they're looking at this particular uh, situation to role play through it and work it through. It's like the only thing that's on their mind uh they, they don't have any friends they don't have anyone else around like th this is literally their only inter uh, ability only place that they can interact with another person and this is a burden sorry not a burden but like this is something that they're carrying with them that that's almost haunting them like a phantasm right and now in this group and this isn't the first time every group that they've brought this to everyone's just pulled up this x-card immediately and said no you're not allowed to talk about this never process this no one wants to hear about this from you right that's not a great message to send to them either but at the same time, everyone in, in that particular group isn't supposed to be held hostage to a group therapy session, right? Like, no one there is trained or skilled enough to help process that per particular trauma that that person went through. So, should we or shouldn't we have this X card, right? Should we or shouldn't we have these safety tools? 
and a lot of conventions are doing the the thing where they're like, oh, safety tool, good. Let's have them everywhere. But none of them are teaching anyone how to use it. The GMs have no freaking idea what they're doing. They're just given these things and told they have to use it or they're not allowed to run games. Uh, and the players are made to agree to using this, even though they don't really understand the consequences of what it means to actually flash one of these cards, right? Like what it could be doing to someone else in the group when they, they pull these things. Right. And that's, that's really a part, a part and parcel with any social interaction, right? You never know where someone else is at. You're always making your best guess. You're trying to be respectful and cordial throughout the whole process. But the more these things become formalized and added to literally every convention ever added to the TTRPG space, the more I think that like really thoughtful discourse needs to be made on these things. And no one is talking about it at all or possibly even alternatives to the x card and yeah that's that's one of those trends that i'd like to see more of right because with the presence of more of this more communication is going to be there in fact a lot of smaller indie rpgs are starting to even publish chapters on safety tools that are included into their actual official printing of their manual and that's something that we're looking to do too in a future print runs for some of our other but we definitely want to pair it with professionals talking about what these tools mean when to and when not to use them and how you might want to go about using them in these particular cases and again another shout out towards the badana group and some other really really cool individuals i think we're going to be looking at or at least i'm looking at using emperwind as a platform to talk about these things and we are going to be starting a blog series hopefully sometime in the future where we'll be discussing not only safety tools but psychotherapy and gaming mental health and really just a, a general like a gm tip the guide on like how you create cool monsters and so forth and really just give as much knowledge to the public as possible about these particular subjects yeah i am it's it's we've i think we talked we me and derek have had a small conversation outside of this episode where i've met him and some of his colleagues and one of the things that Derek brought to my attention that I never really thought about when it has come to the X card is also the pressure of the person who's reaching for the card on the table there are some barriers to like you are now what's the word sort of like feeling like spotlight has been shined on you the second you go to reach out for that thing and some people may not have the courage to do that at a table full of strangers right so then do they power through something involved game that they're feeling uncomfortable about because it's sort of a battle of like which do you care about more the experience that you're feeling at the table or a sort of outing that you're the one who is uncomfortable with this thing amongst like four to seven other individuals at the table or less or more but and i thought i think this is very insightful in that we we are in a period where safety tools are very important but i think that a like you said a lot of conventions are just checking the box on the sort of well everyone really cares about safety tools we need to have safety tools here are safety tools but aren't doing the steps to train or instruct or give conversation about why these things are important and how they can be useful and how they sort of the nuances in which they can be applied at at the table and i actually had a really interesting conversation with seb pines who made a game called Wellings. It's a solo coloring book, journaling, horror experience uh, game where one of the safety tools they specifically have designed for the game is the keyhole and key, which is to me very, very cool because it's a game that's, it is a tool that's specifically, specifically designed for the intent and experience of the game. So in Dwellings, 
you're sort of going through this haunted house and reliving the experience of, of yourself in a dream that you had while you were living here, encountering all these ghosts that mean different things to you based on the narrative. And if there is a particular page or writing or piece of content that you are not comfortable dealing with in your solo experience, which I think uh, is also something like what does safe, what do safety tools look like when it comes to a solo experience, right? Because a lot of these safety tools that are sort of generalized for use are for cooperative or GM or like multiplayer games. But so you have this card that is the size of the page of the book that has a keyhole in the center. And so when you find a particular piece of content that you're not comfortable dealing with, you'll put that card on that page and you'll see like just a little sneak peek of that room. It's almost like you're walking through this haunted house and this door is closed and locked, but you look through the keyhole and you're like, I'm not ready to deal with this, but it sort of allows me to still engage with sort of the immersion of the game while still being safe. And then there's another piece that's basically a bookmark ultimately, but it's this key that sits at the table with you. And when you're getting to a place where maybe like you're not ready to process or deal with this particular narrative piece, you'll put the key in like bookmark and close the book and lock the book up. And when you're ready to reassess entering, when you sort of process or you feel comfortable dealing with this particular piece of narrative, you'll be able to open the book up right at key mark. And you can use these two different tools in tandem to sort of tailor your own uh, journey for your spirituality mental health as you play the game. And so what Derek brings up here that I find very interesting is that one, even though we're so so in need of like the safety tool experience, not every not every safety tool generalized is going to be a catch-all for what's going on at the table, right? I think it's really important to like we've discovered safety tools, right? We've discovered ways to implement safety tools. And now we need to continue the job's not done right? The job's not done, is not reached a perfect state. The X card is not a catch-all. Lines and veils is not a catch-all. And I think it's important to think about those things when both in-game design and in-game execution. And I think it's very cool that you're going to move forward and sort of talk about how Emberwind can facilitate more unique solu- solutions may not be the best word because that makes it sound like whatever you create is going to be the final version, right? But the workings towards finding tools that work specifically in the Emberwind environment that you feel will cater most to the players that are going through this particular uh, software. I always attribute people to computers when it comes to like cognitive <laughs> load. So I view games as software, right? So Yeah, I, that's one of the reasons why I actually don't even talk about Emberwind and mental health in the same breath. Like I never describe Emberwind as a game designed specifically to help people in that way it's just that it's designed with some of those principles in mind simply because i want to create a game that's more thoughtful and considerate of those particular parts of the experience and like i do that very very purposefully because when we're talking about mixing the two together right mental health and gaming there is a tendency to go down that slippery slope and just assume this is the answer to if not everything at least something just like how like each therapy style is a tool right? Just in the same way that a safety tool is a tool, just the same way that a screwdriver is a tool. That doesn't mean that screwdriver is going to be the right tool to hammer a nail in, right? Like you you need a different thing for that. But in this case, and in every case, be it in gaming or therapy or a safety tool, 
we're not dealing with something as simple as a nail. We're dealing with a person. There's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all tool that works for one person, let alone everyone. So yeah, we really need to understand that this is what we have and to do the best with that. And and one other thing I'm going to caution everyone on is don't look at a safety tool as a game to design, if that makes sense. Like you don't want to gamify that into some sort of mechanic for the game in any way. Cause that, and that, that does happen, which is why I'm trying to, to mention this like very succinctly at this moment. Uh, all beautiful stuff. Really, really provoking conversations here. I think we're reaching the two hour mark here and we could probably go for eight months on anything <laughs> we could talk about and maybe longer. Uh, this will not be the last time you hear from Derek. But for now, uh, Derek, we are at the top of the show. Would you once again just give a brief outro of who you are, plugs to get your stuff, how can people get engaged with Emberwind and you on the internet? All of these links that Derek will provide will be in the show notes for your access. Sure. So again, my name is Derek and I am the lead designer of non Games, which produces an awesome game called Amberwind, which we've spent a lot of time talking about here. But we are designing other games too, like uh, a child-friendly, accessibility-oriented card game called Snack Attack, where you play as a hungry little blue nomnosaur trying to steal all your snacks before your siblings can. You can find just about all of our content at amberwindgame.com. And if you're looking for me specifically, just hop into the Discord server using the link on the page and you'll be able to chat with me at any point that you feel like online and uh, hey as awesome and as nice as jeremy is here and this isn't in any way depreciating myself if you do want to hear more from me in the future on any particular topic please go and comment on all of the social media specifically requesting me and also the topic that you want to hear more about and i'd be happy to be back to discuss all that hell yeah listener requests we're going live 2020 2021 yeah Yeah. going to the past comment (laughs) time machine travel thank you derek thank you for being here thank you everyone for sitting down and hanging out with us i have certainly learned a lot from derek and emberwind and i hope that you have too and i look forward to having you sit down uh again with me next time say bye to the people derek well, uh, I won't say bye straight up, but see ya, since it sounds like uh, there's going to be a part two. <laughs> see you next time, everyone. Bye-bye. Right. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Derek and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Derek or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.